A thing that looks like a police box standing in a junkyard. It can move anywhere. Maybe. Concentrate on sin. Give priority to the detectors and the navigation systems. There is a corridor. And the corridor is time. It surrounds all things. On display, I eventually had to go down to the cellar. That's the display department. With a torch. The lights were probably gone. So had the stairs. You are just number six. I am not a number. I am a person. Welcome to British Invaders, episode 399. This is the podcast all about British science fiction television. And this time we are talking about Five Children and It. This is Brian from Canada. And this is Eamon from England. Hello. This is a BBC children's production, a children's serial we are talking about from 1991. It's in the tradition of their classic tea time serial adaptations. And it is an adaptation of E. Nesbitt's 1902 novel, which was also called Five Children and It. And this was adapted as six 25-minute episodes. And of course, it was in color. And you're right, Brian. This is indeed classic children's TV period drama, an adaptation of a classic by uh, Auntie Beeb, the BBC herself. And it gives us some, you know, some fun tropes to uh, to get into and talk to as we go along. Some of which will be familiar to our listeners, I think. Yes, and I think we're still in the era of these quite faithful, sort of traditionally done television adaptations of novels, especially by the BBC. So that's nice. So let's get to the setup of the story. We begin on what I think you will find is quite very familiar territory, which is a family or a group of children move into a new location. So in this case, the family are moving to a new house near the seaside in Kent on the British coastline. And of course, the children, the four children who are sort of central to the story, four of the titular five children, they can't wait to explore their new surroundings. They're by the seaside and soon they're rushing down to explore the sand dunes and the area around their new house. And Excitement is going to follow on, Brian. Absolutely. And furthering the tropes, these five children, four primarily, they're siblings. They're all brothers and sisters. And while they are digging in a sand dune nearby, they discover a strange creature. And it turns out it is a Samiad, a sand fairy. And this sand fairy can grant wishes, but is rather this grumpy character and is always a little bit odd in the way it talks about wishes and the way it grants these wishes. It is indeed. And of course, you won't be surprised to hear that also there are certain rules and regulations, it seems, to do with wishes. And as with any, I guess, representation of making wishes, wishes in fiction, things don't often go the way people plan. Things can go wrong with wishes, it would seem, Brian, and that's going to happen here. Yes, the phrase, be careful what you wish for, is never far from my mind with this one. Exactly. But let's talk about the characters. Okay, so we'll start with the children going down in age order. The oldest of them is Cyril, known in the books affectionately as Squirrel. I'm not quite sure if it was that was mentioned on screen. Here, played by Simon Godwin, and as I say, the oldest child, perhaps the most responsible and sensible of the children, 
And we, you know, you're probably familiar because we've talked about these characters before, Brian. Yes, we have. And we'll get into that a bit later. But this is a group of characters, not actors, but characters we have encountered before. The eldest sister of these siblings, just a little younger than Cyril, is Anthea, played by Nicola Mowat. She is sometimes known as Panther, and she is often the sort of rational one in the group, that where Cyril may be taking a bit more responsibility, Anthea is the one who reasons things out very carefully, and is always important in that sort of more responsible end of things too. Then we have Robert, or Bob as he's known, played by Charles Richards, a slightly more impulsive child, a bit more prone to outbursts, maybe to getting a bit angry or mischievous from time to time than his two older siblings. You know, in particular, in one particular episode, he will, his his anger will cause some complications, let's put it that way. Yes, he is the one who is more the loose cannon of the group compared to the others. Jane, the youngest of the main group of siblings, the four siblings, is played by Tamsin Ardus and is the most sensitive and easily frightened and is quite emotional and definitely sort of the more childlike of the group in in many ways sometimes called Puscat as a nickname then we have the it from the title the samiad this sand fairy here operated and voiced by the puppeteer francis wright and as you've described him already brian this is a grumpy mysterious magical creature that lives in the sand looking a little bit like a sort of dumpy little goblin creature with some sort of slightly motley fur and strange sort of protuberances coming out the top of its head and always slightly cantankerous uh, as these magical creatures seem to be yes an animatronic puppet so quite an interesting part of this Martha, played by Laura Bratton, is one of the adults in this. She is the housekeeper and acts as a nanny to the children. And for most of this, their mother is busy and away doing other things. We hear very little about the father. So for the majority of the story, the children are being taken care of by Martha. Yes, I think their mother is just there at the start of the first episode and towards the end of the last episode, Brian, if I recall correctly. I think that may be right. She isn't in a lot of it. And we have a lot of Martha being sort of exasperated with these children. Yes, because they're off getting into scrapes and adventures the four older children because there is the title that says five children in it so the fifth child is the baby known as the lamb the children's baby brother mostly in a pram usually being looked after by martha but occasionally the children have to look after the lamb and then things will usually go wrong they'll make a wish uh, that will involve the lamb and something will happen so yeah there's a baby brother who's the fifth child but the main characters are the four older siblings who seem to go on all the adventures and make the wishes brian yeah the lamb most of the time tends to be more of a plot device than a character which is why we often talk about the the four children separate from the lamb so onwards through the sand dunes after they've made this 
remarkable discovery and got over their initial shock at this creature's appearance, uh, literal appearance at the sand, and also its appearance in what it looks like. The children start to get to know this sand fairy, this Samiid, and they learn that it is the last of its kind, that it is of a great age, and that it can grant these magical wishes but all as ever is not quite so straightforward as we've discussed. Yes, it can only grant one wish per day and the effects of the wish, whatever it is, disappear at sunset. So they can wish for something, but they only have it for the day. And it was not entirely clear if this is because of the Samiad's age or if it just works that way. Not all of the the reasons for the rules are clear, but we know that those are the rules. And the children, of course, learn that these magical wishes often have unintended consequences. And often when they disappear at the end of the day, there can be consequences to that as well. And of course, there are comical results of that. And there are also sort of teaching moments about that be careful what you wish for idea. I guess the stories where all the wishes come true and last and are completely successful they have no unintended consequences i suspect those stories are not quite so interesting as these stories brian where things go wrong with as you say comic consequences yeah the ones that go right are not the memorable stories yeah so it's production notes time for five children and it and we have talked about edith nesbitt known uh, by her professional name as e Nesbit back in episodes 363 and 364 and we covered a series called The Phoenix and the Carpet from 1976. E. Nesbit, who lived from 1858 to 1924, probably still best known as the author of the almost iconic British uh, children's novel The Railway Children and at least one extremely famous film adaptation of that but also her trilogy of novels, which were sort of in at the moment, dealing with this particular family and their encounters with a variety of magical creatures. And while we were reading up about uh, Edith Nesbitt, we found out, let's say, that she had a difficult and unhappy marriage to a chap called Herbert Bland. And I think, Brian, probably the kindest way to put this is that Herbert Bland was probably maintaining several families at the same time, it seems. So he was away, he was perhaps spending all the money on his multiple families. So that caused some financial difficulties for Edith Nesbitt. Yes, and, you know, she published her works with her birth name rather than her husband's name at that point, which tells you something interesting. But she needed a way of supporting herself and her children independently, and she decided that writing was the best way that she could do that. And she did that with writing poetry and a variety of things. But Five Children and It was initially serialized under the title The Samiad or the Gifts in the Strand magazine in 1902. And if you make the Strand magazine, I think that tells you something about being successful as a writer. And it was then released as a book form later that year, still in 1902, under the title Five Children in It. And it was followed by a couple of sequels. 
First, The Phoenix and the Carpet in 1904, which we talked about a television adaptation about that earlier. And then The Story of the Amulet in 1906. So she's got this trilogy of novels about this family and their encounters. We've said, as we've said, we've covered an earlier version of The Phoenix and the Carpet. This television serial in the very early 1990s probably owes or at least arises from the success of some of those great 1980s TV adaptations of children's classics, such as The Box of Delights from 1984, which you and Xander covered on a very early episode of British Invaders, Brian. Yes, that's right, right at the beginning. And of course, we've covered the line The Witch in the Wardrobe from 1988. And so the BBC were quite keen, building on the success of those series and the popularity of them, to make more sort of adaptations of classical children's serials, particularly the sort of magical ones. And it was producer Richard Callanan who suggested let's return to the works of Edith Nesbitt as a suitable tea time serial for children's TV. Now, Richard Callanan, best known to us because we've talked about him when we covered his collaboration with Russell T. Davis at the start of Russell T. Davis's uh, television career when we talked about Dark Season and Century Falls, Brian. Yes, that's right. And in this case, Callanan asked Helen Creswell to write the script to adapt it for television. And we have come across Helen Creswell a couple of times before. She was well known for writing for Jack and Ori and also for creating and writing the series Lizzie Dripping, which we covered in British Invaders 367 and 368. She also adapted the Demon Headmaster series and Tracy Beaker and also wrote the novel Moondial and adapted it to a television version. And we covered the television version of Moondial in British Invaders 252 and 253. Creswell was also well known for lots of her own original novels. So that's a second successful children's novelist who was involved here. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, she is, as you say, a well-renowned children's author in her own right and also doing these great adaptations. Yeah, absolutely. And in this case, the adaptation, Five Children in It, was directed by Marilyn Fox, who also came from Jack and Ori. And we covered some of her work with Codename Icarus and, of course, the 1980s BBC the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So you have lots of people with very strong children's TV and children's literature backgrounds. And Michael Omer composed the music for the series, the theme tune, and particularly wrote the Samyad's Wishing Song, which ends every episode. And if you have any memories of this series, you will probably remember the Samyad singing over the end credits, uh, this song about wishing and the consequences of wishing so that's quite a memorable part of this show and of course the other memorable part is the samiad itself this animatronic creature which malcolm james leading the bbc special effects department produced this great puppet with various animatronic features Interestingly, they went through a few design choices because in the book, as I understand it, Brian, the creature is described as having its eyes on stalks protruding from the top of its head. 
And I think they tried that early on and they found, firstly, it was slightly difficult to operate the eyes. And secondly, they thought it made it look a little bit too scary as a puppet. So they've given it more conventional eyes, but I notice it still has the sort of stalk-like protuberances from the top of its head. So maybe that's a, a remnant of earlier designs. Yes, it does have sort of a strange look to it, which works very well, I think. And a puppet, you know, it does quite a bit. It has a range of expressions. The eyes move. Obviously, the mouth moves and is operated by the puppeteer. And even it does the thing that's described in the book. Uh, when it makes a wish, it sort of blows itself up and inflates its stomach. And of course, they could they manage to do this with some sort of balloon or bladder, I gather, to make the Sammy appear to sort of inflate itself when it goes through the effort of making a wish. And it's all it's quite impressive as a bit of you know screen wizardry and actually done practically, Brian. Yes. The puppet was operated by Francis Wright, who had been a puppeteer on Spitting Image, but also on Jim Henson's The Storyteller, which we've covered as well. So we have some real expertise in puppetry there. And to film the sequences with the, the Sand Fairy, the Samiad, they were doing that on location and they had to dig a hole in the sand dunes to put a box in there that the puppeteer could be in to operate the puppet. And then that box was covered with sand and gravel, so he was uh, sort of boxed in there. And the child actors described it as being a remarkably lifelike character to interact with. And we often hear this about animatronic puppets like, say, The Muppet Show, or, of course, for us, Jim Henson's The Storyteller. The actors often say they actually find them quite easy to interact with and uh, just act as if they're another character, which, of course, they are. And the story of the digging out the hole and the box, I'd, I'd love to try and find some pictures of this because it seems like quite a technical feat to do this on location and have it look like the Samiad is popping out of the sand. Yeah, that's definitely ambitious to do this on location and doing things with animatronics with that much sand around so interesting that they that they did that i'm a little bit surprised that they chose to do it on location and it's great that they did it works very well and it's definitely an accomplishment here so we'll just mention some other special effects because there's a little bit of cso or green screen sequences particularly when the children become able to fly when they uh, grow wings and learn and are able to fly which I gather from the child actors required very complicated and somewhat uncomfortable harnesses to be worn so that they could then be filmed sort of flying in front of a green screen and then that be composited into the shot later on. And again, I would say for 1991, not too bad at all, actually, Brian, the way the actual end result comes out. Yeah, it works. It definitely works. And there's a little bit of also magical stuff. There's some invisible furniture, some invisible food. Some of that is just conveyed by acting, but there's also a little bit of, I guess... Uh, again, green screening and other various effects to make the baby appear to be floating in the air and so on. Yes, there are lots of things that they had to convey from the, the various wishes and their various effects. Five Children and It was broadcast on Wednesdays at 5.10pm starting on January 9th, 1991. And we know that this was another successful and very popular and well-remembered series for the BBC and so successful that it was in fact nominated 
for the 1992 BAFTA for Best Children's Series. Although, interestingly, as we're talking about animatronics, it lost out to the storyteller The Greek Myths series, which we briefly touched upon when we did the original Jim Henson's The Storyteller. So that actually won the BAFTA, but this got nominated. So, you know, it was uh, impressively successful and well-received. Yes, that's definitely a big deal for any British children's television serial to be nominated for that BAFTA. And of course, so successful that the BBC wanted a sequel. And interestingly, we'll perhaps talk about this uh, as we go on, Brian, but interestingly, they didn't go to one of the sequel novels. They decided to do a new sequel to commission Helen Creswell to write a sequel, which was called The Return of the Samoyed. That was broadcast in 1993. Also, directed by Marilyn Fox. Francis Wright returns to operate and voice the Samiad again, the same puppet, but completely different characters for the children this time and, and different child actors. I think it's giving a new family an encounter with the Samiad is what the sequel does. And I should also mention that Helen Creswell then published that, The Return of the Samiad, as a novel in the same year, 1993. And I think you've mentioned on notes, Brian, they didn't turn to Edith Nesbitt's own sequel, as it were. Yes, that's right. So The Phoenix and the Carpet, which was the second novel in the trilogy, has been adapted a number of times for film and for television. And Five Children in It, we're talking about an adaptation here. It's been adapted other times. I know it's been adapted for American television a couple of times more recently. Those two have definitely been adapted, but the third book in the trilogy, The Story of the Amulet from 1906, as far as we can tell, has not been adapted. And I haven't looked closely enough at the source material to see if there are reasons for that, why it might not be something that would work for a modern audience or would not be practical to adapt. I'm not sure of the details, but it remains something that hasn't been adapted as far as we can tell. Interesting, yes. A new standalone sequel by Helen Creswell instead. Right. And the BBC did come back to the works of Edith Nesbitt with another adaptation of The Phoenix and the Carpet. That was in 1997 with David Suchet voicing The Phoenix. And Five Children and It was also filmed in 2004 with Eddie Izzard voicing the CGI Samiad for that production. And yeah, there are other productions of Five Children and It as well. So these novels, this Samiad trilogy from E. Nesbitt, have been used for adaptations quite a bit. But as you say, interesting that they've just stuck to the first two of the trilogy and nobody seems to have done the third one as far as we can tell that's right yes yeah okay interesting stuff so let's do availability of this series uh in region two you can watch five children in it on a bbc dvd from 2014 as far as i can tell it's just the six episodes and no extra features i'd love to see some production stills of the filming of the samiad set but apparently i don't think they're on there no they aren't it's just the episodes and that's it right so that's currently about seven pounds on amazon and the reason i'm a bit vague about the dvd is because i've been watching it on streaming where you can get the whole series in sd on amazon video for about five pounds 
It's also on iTunes for the same price. Doesn't seem to be streaming on BritBox or anywhere else at the moment. But for a fiver, you can get all six episodes on iTunes or Amazon. So fairly easy as ever in Region 2. Across the pond, Brian. In Region 1, there is no release. So for this, I went to importing the BBC DVD. And I believe that's the main option you have available over here. Right. Now, the book, of course, is widely available. It's in the public domain. And in fact, there is a collection of E. Nesbitt's complete works available on Kindle. I bought that for something like one or two dollars. So you can get quite an inexpensive copy of the source material and quite a number of books and lots of poetry from E. Nesbitt. It's quite an extensive collection. Oh, okay. Fantastic. Sadly, I've not read the book, but I guess, as you say, it's very easily available. Yes, I have it there and I haven't read it yet. Right. We will get to it. (laughs) So next time we are going to come back, we're going to talk about the children's wishes in a little bit more detail. And particularly, we'll talk about one or two of the ones that go wrong and how they go wrong. And we're going to talk about some tropes of children's literature that this perhaps demonstrates. And perhaps we'll also mention a couple of tropes that we're quite glad this adaptation does not get into this time, Brian. Yes, for sure. And we'll also get into our recommendations of whether you should get a hold of this and whether you should watch it or not. Until next time, all of our episodes are available at BritishInvaders.com. Or if you search for British Invaders on Facebook, you can find our group there and join in on some of the discussions. We are also on Twitter. We are at BritInvadersPod. So please follow us there and feel free to talk to us that way as well yes please do and of course we are proud members of the voice of geeks network which you will find at vognetwork.com several geek themed podcasts but also twitch streaming channels and lots of gaming stuff going on there all you need for your geek related needs at vognetwork.com absolutely so thank you for listening and this is brian from canada signing off yes thank you very much for being with us until next time Eamon in england also signing off <laughs>